the CYC Podcast Discussions on Child and Youth Care, episode number 164. I'm Wolfgang Vashon. Today we're continuing with some of the recordings I made at the 22nd South African National Association of Child and Youth Care and the 4th CYC Net World Conference, which took place in Durban, South Africa in June of 2019. The presentation by Werner van der Westhuizen was called Coming Full Circle, Young Adults Reflect on Their Experiences in Care, Their Transition to Independence, and How They Find Their Place in the World. The presentation is a collection of reflections and insights from Werner on conversations he had with young people that used to live in a residential care program he was previously the director of. I hope you find the presentation as provocative and insightful as I did. Please enjoy. Thank you very much. It's very difficult to follow off the hearers and to, you know, hearing him speak and then think that, you know, I, w- I want to capture your attention with something. Um, but I'm going to try. So let, let me just start first and just ask, sometimes people take photos of the slides and on some of the slides I have um, pictures of young people that I've spoken to and they've given me permission to show their photos but they haven't given me permission to distribute it so please don't take photos of them because I'm um, just out of respect for, for you know for their privacy so I, I want to start by you know asking you how many of you have played with with clay you know with uh, and if you play with different colors of clay you like to squish them together and it's it's really fun and then after a while after you've played with it for a while you know what happens is you uh, because it's so beautiful when you take it out of the packet and then you try to take it apart again and then you can't right because all the colors get they sort of get squished in and they get mixed up and i think the stories um i want to tell you a couple of stories and it, it sort of it works that way that our stories become it's it's like the clay that gets mixed in and you can't separate it later on and so the young people that i want to talk to you about their story and my story have become intertwined in a way that I, I, I cannot separate it anymore. So in order to tell you a little bit about them, I have to also tell you a little bit about me. And I hope that's okay. So I've worked with young people all, all my professional, for all my professional life. And um, I, I had the, the, the privilege to work in a residential care center for about 13 years. And 13 years is about, if you think about the, the age that people usually, or I think when children come, a lot of the time to residential care is around the age of five or so. And it's, it's for a lot of them, I don't know what's happening with the sound. Uh, for a lot of them, that's, that's sort of, uh, I arrived the same time that they did. And when, when I left, it's sort of, uh, many of them left around the same time or a little bit earlier. Um, <laughs> So my time there and their time there uh, sort of comes together. Um, so th- there came a time when I, when I left my, my job as, as a director in residential care and I went my own way. And sort of, you know, there was a time where there was a gap between where I was and where some of the young people were. And then a funny thing happened. I, you know, I always thought that um, because of professional boundaries and all of that stuff, you know, you don't get over-involved, you know, we taught things like that. And, and a strange thing happened that um, they started to invite me on Facebook. A lot of the young people that 
was in care when I was there. They started to invite me on Facebook and I, I started to accept the friend requests that we were always told no, no, professional boundaries, don't do that. And um, there, was an, a, a, there was a discussion that they wanted to start a reunion and they wanted to get together and there was a big desire of, for a lot of the youth that left care to get together and do something. And they wanted to go back in a way and do something for children that are in care now. And, and that's sort of how I came back together with them. And, and I asked them, would you like to have some conversations about you know, what, what it was like when you were in care and what it was like to leave and how you sort of you know, find your place in the world? And they were very keen. And so I had a couple of discussions with um, quite a few of them. And there are three, three young people whose, you know, I want to share highlights of um, the conversations that I had with them. And I must tell you that it turned out very different from what I thought it would. My initial idea was that I was going to interview them and I was going to do this very professionally and I, I was going to have a set of questions and it was going to be, you know, very scientific. And it didn't work out like that at all because as it turned out, their, their stories and my story are mixed up. And so I, I couldn't really just be an interviewer and we, I didn't interview them in the end, we just had conversations. And I will share with you some of the highlights of those conversations and some of my thinking and some of my reflection on the things that they said. Um, and then one thing I can tell you about, maybe a little bit about my story, um, it's not something that I share everywhere. But my wife and I, I've been married for, uh, we've been married for over 20 years, and we, we're not able to have our own children. But it turns out that I've been working with children all my life, and my wife is a nurse and midwife, so she brings children into the world. <coughs> so, sort of funny how things worked out for me like that. But I always imagined that if, if I were to have children or a child, I, I would want a girl for some reason, because they're cute and things like that. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know why. And so I've got a, I, I mean, uh, so this one lady that I'll tell you about, she's 29 years old, and I still receive Father's Day gifts from her. You know, and um, it's been su such a long time. So in a way, um, I, I guess I have a daughter in a way. Yes. And there she is, and her name is Melanie. And she's very much part of my life, um, even today still. So she's the first person that I, that I interviewed, really had a conversation about. And I was able to ask her some, some things really, just really frankly. And, and um, I found that it, it wasn't just what she told me, but I was able to also tell her and, and the other young people as well, is tell them how I saw things and you know, what it was like from my perspective. And so here are some of the things. And for Melanine, growing up in care was very much a family experience. Um, she said that, and these are her words, she said that I was part of a family and she felt, she felt that, that that was a big thing for her. Uh, she said that I was part of a family and she said that it was the best thing that could ever have happened to me. She says that um, if, she, if she did not happen to um, land up in care, at the time that she did, she can imagine that her life would have turned out very, very differently and not for the better. So for her, it was mainly a, a, a really positive experience. 
Um, and it's and that's not the story of all young people. It's not a it's not a positive story for everyone. And at the time that she was there, she experienced four different house mothers. And I know that um, you know child and youth care workers, but these are her words. And so um, and she said that some of them were very loving and caring, um, but that wasn't always the experience. So she had a mixed experience, but still for her, it was really about about family and being part of a family. So she says that she remembers the big things, the big events um, in particular. She remembered the, the times when we had big functions and social events, and, and those are the things that she um, really enjoyed. And um, very important for her was when she graduated from school. That was a big achievement for her, and she, she was very proud of that. And um, she says that she was very strongly supported by her house mother. In fact, she tells the story of when, when she was studying, a house mother would offer up her own room and say to her, come and study in my room. There's some space for you. I know it's noisy. And um, it's just a nice example of how she went you know, beyond what was expected at the time for, for this young person. And she remembers it. Um, uh, the, the, the things that I'm highlighting, it's, it's not questions that I asked her in the end. These, these are the things that they remember. So this is when I asked them, what was it like for you in care? This is what they tell me. When I asked them, what was it like for you to leave and what was it like for you to go out on your, on your own? This is what they remember. And this is what stands out for her. She said that she had a lot of support and she could go to many different people when she had to choose school subjects and, and things like that. So for her, that, that was really positive. And again, unfortunately, that's not the experience of, of all of the young people, but it was for her. So an interesting development um, in, in residential care in South Africa at the moment is that there is a strong push for residential care centers to have independent living programs, uh, programs that help young people uh, become independent, I suppose. And um, I, I'm, I'm critical of some of that because um, my experience in talking to people in, in residential care that work there is that this has very much become a, a, a thing at the moment where government is making funding available. So now we have to find a way to spend that money. And, and I'm very critical of that. But I'm not critical of the idea to have an independent living program of some kind um, because I've experienced that and, and I know that it's, it's useful for people. And so Melanie grew when she, when she left um, when she left the, the village where she grew up in a family house. She went to live in a in a independent living program, which was we called it the youth house. And it was in the community; it was fully integrated, and there was um, no way that you would know that that was part of a program. And she lived with with a group of other girls. And uh, she said that moving was very difficult for her initially, but. Um, she had to get used to doing things for herself. And she says that if you don't make breakfast, you don't eat. And, um, you know, that, that was her experience. And that, that's exactly what happened. And it turns out that it was one of the most important things for her and for other young people to learn is that uh, having to start to do things for yourself. Um, she said that she was prepared before moving to, to the youth house. There, there were programs and there were lots of discussions. And so in the end when she moved, it, it wasn't out of the blue, it wasn't sudden, and, and she was prepared for that along with a group of other young people. <coughs> and uh, she had to learn how to work with money. Um, and and that, that is a big challenge when you don't have a lot of it. Um, you know, you have to 
make things work somehow. And she learned how to do that with others. They, they had to pool money to do shopping, to buy food and groceries and make it work. And that's quite a challenge. And it wasn't always a smooth process. And we had to help them a couple of times along the way. And my wife somehow got involved in that process. And they, uh, she spent a lot of time with the girls and they would sit and look at, you know, go through newspapers and magazines and find coupons. And she would teach them, well, this is, this is how you do shopping. You know, you, you compare prices and you find the cheapest one and you go and you buy that. And um, you don't buy today because tomorrow something else is going on special. And so they had to learn about, you know, how to stretch things, how to make things work. And she remembers this. The, the, only, the only downside to that is my wife still does it today, and I don't necessarily you know, appreciate the, the coupon thing and having to wait for specials and all of that, but um, it sort of stuck with her. And so she had to learn to work with money from a young age, but she also says that um, it's an attitude that came from the house mothers, because the house mothers, um, the way that it was set up is that every house would have its own budget. So a mother, a mother, a childcare worker would receive her budget for a household um, at the beginning of a month, and they would have to do everything with that money on their own. And the children would be part of deciding how do we do this, what, what do we want to eat, and how do we spend the money. And so the house mothers had to, every month, they had to reconcile their books and you know, keep the slips of purchases they make and so the children got used to that kind of process and she she says Melanie says that this helped her tremendously because by the time she had to really learn how to do those things it was already part of what she knew it was it was just some uh, little bit of extra knowledge that she had to, to gain so she had to learn how to work with a budget and she had to learn how to stick with it and she's done that, that very well so the time came when Melanie moved out of, of the youth house, moved out of the independent living program and into her own flat. And she was, um, she moved into, into a, a flat where uh, it was just built. So she was the first person to live there. So she was very, very proud um, when she eventually could go out on her own and move into her own flat. And it was brand new. It was really wonderful. But she remembers um, that nobody came to look at it. And, and it was a big disappointment for her um, that she, she moved out and here she is, an adult, and she's moving into this big world and she's got this brand new flat and nobody came. And so that was a big disappointment for her. And I think that's something that we need to remember, you know, <coughs> is that when young people move out, when they move out, when they, wherever they're moving to, it's it's not just something that we can cut off, you know, there has to be, you know, they, they still value our opinion, even though they don't technically need it, they, they still want that approval and that acknowledgement. She still had some financial support and she continued with the studies and, and she's carrying on with that. And uh, she said that at the time when she moved, I don't know all of this, um, the decision for her to move in really into independence was, was really based on um, financial constraints in the organization and and it worked out well for her but it's a dangerous thing when we make decisions based on constraints in organizations and not based on whether young people are really ready and so one must just be weary of that um, but for her it turned out all right she said that the routines that she adopted in the house she still stuck to it and I, I, I know that and so that's, that's very important, is those routines 
um, young people tend to carry that into their lives with them. She said that one of the biggest adjustments for her when she moved out was that there was no safety net. And this is something I think that's different than for, I think, for most young people in the world. I think most young people, when they strike out on their own, they have a safety net. Most young people, I say most young people, I don't really know anymore, but many young people have some kind of a safety net. And I think it's important that they must have a safety net. I, I think we would all want that. You know, when you do something, when you start something new for the first time and you're uncertain and you don't know how things are going to turn out, it's really scary. And um, it's one of the things that she remembers. She didn't have a safety net. And uh, I asked her about, you know, support and all of that. And, and her view was that she, they were spoiled. The children were too spoiled with all the support that they received. From my perspective, I, I don't think that's spoiling them. I think it's what they're supposed to have. But from her perspective, this is how she saw it. She saw it as, that's, that's spoiling us. There was too much, which is interesting. I asked her, well, how, how should young people be prepared? What, what should happen? And she said that young people should have more responsibility and they should experience work before they get to go out on their own. And of course, this is because that was her experience. When she left, she, she went into a job immediately and she had to learn about how to be professional and work with people and all of those things. And so from her perspective, this is what was important for her. She said that more emotional support is needed when, when youth move out, when they move to independence. And um, I, I agree with that. Um, I think when she said that she moved out and nobody came to look at a, a new place, I think that, that is the lack of not even support, but just acknowledgement that she experienced. Some of the relationships that she had when she was in care, she kept. They, they were friendships and, and, and uh, people that she knew and she maintained many of those relationships, but not with the organization where she stayed. And, th and that is interesting. Um, and I'm, I don't really have my mind made up whether it is a good thing or a bad thing. Um, I, I, I really don't know, but, but that's what she says and so I take note of that that some relationships were maintained, but not from you know, where she came from. Um, one of the saddest things that she said that affects her the most is hearing about young people that were with her in care at the time and how they struggle. And, she, and it's the way they all talk. They say our brothers and our sisters are struggling and they, they're not managing on their own. And they hear these sad stories and they don't know what to do about it. And that's, you know, that's, that's difficult to hear that. Not, not everybody has an easy and a happy story to tell. And we have to differentiate in who needs what kind of care and what, who needs what kind of support. And some of them may need more support than others. And we have to individualize, you know, what we do for them. So, Next to the ugly man is um, young lady Maxine. Um, and so let me tell you a little bit about, about her story. So Maxine, again, I, I didn't ask her standard questions. I just told them what I wanted and then they started to talk. So where they start this story for me is also significant. And the words they used um, were very significant. So she starts to tell a story by saying that 
Um, she works now as a preschool teacher, very happy. And I remember even, even when she was in care, she always went to the kindergarten, she always wanted to help the teachers. So for her, this is really doing where her passion is, what she wanted to do. She's married now for 10 years and she's expecting her third child. And I would say that if you're working and you're married for 10 years, I, I think that's for me, I, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. It's, it's, uh, it's positive. But for her, it was very difficult to leave. She says that it was my home. It was almost too comfortable to be there. It was <coughs> too, too comfortable. And then again, I think, but, but this is not the way that it should be because the comfort that you experience, um, it, it shouldn't be uncomfortable so that when you leave, you are used to discomfort. Yeah. It should be comfortable. And when, and when you move, there should be, I think, mostly some, some comfort. We can accept that there will be scary times and, and all of that. But um, it, it struck me that she said that uh, maybe it was too comfortable when I was there, and, and that's why it was so difficult for me. Um, she said that she cried a lot and she didn't want to go. And the story is a difficult one. Um, she initially lived alone. She looked after herself. She says that she learned a lot. So she puts that positive spin on things, even though I hear the difficult part as well. Um, very, very difficult times financially and very hard to live like that. She, uh, in the community where she stayed at the time and even where she stays now, um, violence is a daily occurrence. Gunshots is a daily thing. And she told me about many times when she had to take her children and hide under the bed because there was shooting in the community. It's a big problem with gangsterism. So um, fear um, for, for, and, and safety is is important. Um, she also said that it's very sad for her to see the poverty in the community where she stays. And she's very touched by how, how younger children struggle. And so I don't know, that, that may be something for future um, re research for someone to look into, but um, I, I got the impression that young people who, who grew up in care somehow, um, it appears to me that they are deeply touched by when other young people struggle. Um, so there's, there's a lot of empathy with, for her with children. She left initially because um, she got pregnant and it was the policy at the time, as, as is still in many child and youth care centers, that if you get pregnant you have to find a job and you have to go and care for your family. You cannot be a child and have a child in residential care. And it's still the case in, in many places. And that was the policy at the time. So that was the reason for her leaving. And again, that's not, um, it's, it's a pity that it, it was based on policy and not based on what she needed at the time. And so when I tell you these things, I, it's sort of, you know, when I say good things, I feel good about it because I was part of that story. And when I say things that I reflect on now that I feel this is not the way that it should be, I also know that I was also part of that story. So she continued, she had support with the studies, she continued with the studies and she became a preschool teacher. So, so she's very proud of that. Um, she reflects on the youth house, also when Mel she and Melanie shared time in the youth house. And she also says that it was very nice to be there. Um, they had a lot of time for themselves, a lot of independence, a lot of free movement. They could come and go as they pleased. And so there was a lot of opportunity for learning along with a lot of challenges. But it seems to me that 
when the young people think back on that, they feel that it helped them in some way, that, that the independence was, was useful for them. Um, they bought their own supplies, they learned how to bu budget, they learned how to work with money. So just like Melanie, that, that is an important part of her preparation for, for independence. She learned how to, and had to learn how to get along with others, sort of living together. And I think we know that it can, it can get really tricky when, when you put a lot of people into a small space after a while, um, you know, it seems like the space shrinks. It's just not enough space. And so when you live with other people, that it can, it can get tricky. You're in each other's space all the time. And she had to learn how to do that. She <coughs> says that the success in any program depends on the attitude of the young person. This is, this is her reflection. Um, I, I agree with that. Um, I, I also add to that that it depends on the attitude of the other people that you um, share the space with. Um, she um, <coughs> says that before entering the program, there was preparation, there were a lot of workshops. So I, so I, I hear that part, that they, they, they didn't just go into an independent living program, there was a lot of work done to prepare them. And she remembers that, she reflects on that. Um, she found that learning a routine was very useful to her, and she tells a lot of stories about how she carried the routines that she learned as a child into her own family now, having her own children, spending time with the children, praying together, having meals <coughs> together. So that's really good to hear. I, I was really happy to hear that. Um, her experience, though, of care, of being in care, was often being bullied, often being left out. So it wasn't easy for her growing up with a lot of other kids around her. Um, I asked her about preparation. What, what do young people need? And she said they need to be exposed to the real life. And then I think of a story and, and the way it started for her, really very difficult, really dangerous and violent communities. And so when she thinks about what the young people need, obviously that is where it comes from. It's her experience. Um, and then uh, she said that people need to, young people need to see the impact um, of drug abuse and gangsterism. She thinks that they should be well prepared for that. Um, her opinion, I asked her about getting pregnant and having to move out. What, what was that like for her? And she just said that it's really sad for her when she thinks about that now. And I don't know what to say about that except that, yes, it is really sad. Did she have support and what support does she think that people need? She said, yes, definitely. When young people move on to independence, they need support. Um, but again, just like Melanine, she has contact with others and she says that it didn't work out that well for everybody. And, and they're aware of that. And they're aware of their brothers and sisters who are struggling. And that is still something that I think for us is unfinished business. You know, it, it cannot just be the end of the story that some of them did well and some of them didn't do well. It cannot be the end of the story. We cannot leave it there. Um, we, have to, we have to go back. And uh, especially young girls who become pregnant while in care, I think are especially vulnerable. Right. So once she left, um, contact with a lot of the people stopped. But then she also maintained many of the relationships she maintained. Uh, she kept contact with people as individuals, but again, not via the organization, not via the place where she stayed. And um, that's sort of, I add to that, that when we talk about family, and Kira's sort of also you know, spoke about that, for me, family is for life, or it's supposed to be for life. 
and so I'll reflect on that later again. But when when we talk about family and when we use the word family with, with children and young people, we have to be serious about that. This is not something, it's not a word to throw around very easily. And it's, it's, um, it's sort of difficult now to go back and to see that we, we had the ideal of this, this is a family, um, but as it turns out, the, there were a lot of holes in that ideal and we have a lot of work still to do there. So you'll notice that their opinion of what young people need obviously is linked to their experiences. Melanine's experience was, I, I have to adapt into the working world, and so that's, that's what she thinks that people need. Uh, Maxine's experience was, it's tough out there, life is hard, and so she thinks that is what young people need, they need to be prepared for life. And so I suspect that if we talk to a lot of more people and we ask them the same question, what they tell us is going to be a reflection of what they experienced, what it was like for them. This young man um, is Gerald. He is, I think, 34 years old now. So he is like really an adult now, not, not a child anymore the way that, that I knew him. So I asked him, he told me a story um, that was really difficult to hear. He, he said that when he arrived, he was about five years old, he came into care. And he says that one of the first things that he remembers was um, within the first week of being there, he, uh, one of the other boys in the house, I, I don't know all the context, but he, he you know, the, the house mother at the time gave him a beating. And what happened was he was in the shower too long. And so she, you know, administered corporal punishment. And as this boy was running around, he was messing water all over the place and everything just got worse. And Gerald tells the story and he says that he remembers that. Now, for <coughs> me, Again, the question that I asked him was, what was it like for you? And, and this is the first thing that he remembers. This is the first impression. And he is now 34 years old. And this, and this is still where he starts his story. And so that's quite, that's chilling, you know, when one thinks about that. And he said that the thing that went through his mind was, when will it be me? And so that is the lens through which he entered into residential care. And that influenced Probably all of the decisions that he made, how he experienced his, his world, everything was colored by that. And so, yeah, it would affect what he <coughs> believes about himself, what he believes about um, the people around him. Yeah. So, obviously, single experiences can be very, very powerful. We must not underestimate them. And the context for them are sometimes not known. You know, we don't, we don't always know. Sometimes it's a combination of real context, if there is such a thing as real. Um, but it, it might have to do with the real context and it might just be what, what a combination also of what the child brings to the situation of our inner context, our perceptions. And so I already said that we need to understand the significance of this early moment in his care, more than 30 years later, this is the story that he tells. So, but he, he also he uses some very, wonderful metaphors when he talks about um, his experience in care. One of the things he said that, you know, when the water that comes out of a tap is dirty, you don't change the taps, right? And, and it, it's, I was amazed by the amount of insight he had into this world where he grew up. Um, so I take it to have a, a, an implication for young people, you know, that um, young people are not to be moved around very easily. And in South Africa, we we talk about young people moving deeper into the system. 
And so that's sort of part of what he hinted to. You know, when, when the water's dirty, you don't change the taps. And when young people struggle, we, we don't just change the taps. We don't just swap the young people around with other young people. I also, I also found um, some meaning there in terms of how we work with staff, how we work with the professional people around us. That again, when people struggle, it's not, it's not a matter of swapping them out and finding other people. Um, and especially if we use words like family. Family is for everyone. So I, I think one needs to make a decision. If you want to use words like family, you have to be bound to that. You know? Can't be family when it suits us, and then when it doesn't suit us, we're employers and employees. So it's tricky, I know, but it's something to think about. And it, it reminded me of what Jim Anglin uh, said about the struggle for congruence, which is essentially that you know, the degree to which all the different levels in an organization understand and agree on what is in the best interest of the child, that is the degree of congruence. And if you don't have that agreement, you have incongruence. And what it means for me really is that stuff falters down from the adults to the children. And in the stories that the young people tell me, you can see that. Um, they knew a lot of things um, that I didn't know that they knew because they, they pick up on it. He said to me, uh, when I spoke to Gerald, he said to me, uncle, when you arrived, the damage was already done. Now, he's thinking, he knows obviously what his experience was like. I, I don't know that. But him reflecting back now, he says that when, when I arrived, the damage was already done, and, and that's how he sort of sees his story. And, and so you don't always know what damage has been done or how it affects relationships now. And that is something to keep in mind. When I started out, I was very young and very naive, I sort of had this idea that you start with everyone, you start with a clean slate, you know. But it's not, it's not like that, of course. We don't start with a clean slate. We, we start with all the baggage that we bring with us. And so sometimes what we experience, the resistance that we experience, um, it's not about us necessarily, and it's not about what's happening right now. It, it can have a totally different context, and, and we, we, have to, we have to know that. Um, so I think of these things as foundational damage or, or broken blueprints, and I'll, I'll briefly tell you about how I think about that. You know, if you, if you drive along um, the suburbs, you will see all these townhouse complexes and the houses all look the same. And it's because <coughs> they, use, they take one blueprint and then they use it to build all the houses because it's cheaper, it's more economical. And it turns out that people do the same thing. We start, we start out in life and we have the first relationship with a caregiver. And that relationship gives us the blueprint for all the other relationships in our lives. And if we're lucky and we get a good blueprint, we can use that blueprint, we can strengthen it, but we use it to build good relationships. But if the blueprint that we get, if it's a broken blueprint, then we, we take that broken structure into all of the relationships in our lives. We, we copy it. Unless something helps for us to, to learn how to, how, to, how to fix it, unless we learn how to build healthy relationships, we just don't know. So we go into all the relationships in our lives with that broken blueprint, essentially. And so what Gerald told me, this is what it reminded me about. This is typically like a, a broken blueprint. And I come along, and from my perspective, I was wondering, why is this young person so difficult? Why doesn't he like me? I'm trying so hard to be this cool person and connect with him, and it's just not working. And that was my perspective. Um, but he told me how, how he experienced things. So I think of the work that we do as blueprint work. Um, in fact, I think I must, I must 
trademark that mm -hmm. it's not taken already but but I think that's essentially the work that we do is young people come into this world with broken blueprints <coughs> um, broken structures of, of of how to be in relation to other people and our job essentially is to teach them healthy ways to be in relationships that that's really what it's all about and that's why we say that the relationship is the therapy uh, when, when I did my training, we were taught that you build a relationship with a client so that you can deliver the therapy. But actually, it turns out that the relationship that we build is the therapy. That is really what it is all about. All the other stuff is just fancy, you know, whatever. But it's about relationship. And so my thinking is that any approach or intervention that fails to address that, what I call foundational blueprint, really is just, yeah. Just, it's just band-aid work, really. It's like trying to literally put a band-aid where a house is cracked, where a wall is cracked because the foundation is bad. And that's what's happening for a lot of young people. And it's strongly related to experiences of early trauma. Uh, we, we cannot patch a wall like that and think it's going to hold. We have to go back to you know, where things went wrong and, and we have to repair it. So another metaphor that Gerald used was he said, well, a chameleon's color is an adaptation to the environment. You don't ask a chameleon why it takes on a particular color, but then why do we ask children why they take on a particular behavior? I'm aware that the time is catching up with me, so I'll, I'll try. Uh, he said that the chameleon's color makes him invisible to the environment, and that's what a lot of children do. They try to become invisible and not to attract attention to them. So he, he has amazing insight into this. A child's behavior is also, I think, a co-constructed role. It's not just something that happens on its own. We are a part of that social environment that constructs these roles. And I'm going to skip some slides, but basically, um, you know, it, I, I think many times in child and youth care, it, it becomes, it's, it's, a, it's a mutual thing. You know, we become the, the guards. We have to guard the children and maintain the structure. And their role really is to try to break out from that. And we get caught up in this mutual you know, role-playing, essentially. And that's not, so I'm going to skip a couple of things. For me, quality care is the best preparation for independence. Um, and, and this is what I get from all of these stories, that the quality of care provided throughout, not the program, is really what matters. It's what happens early on and how that is maintained throughout their experience. Early relationships that are the blueprints for adult relationships, the blueprint work, that stuff that we do early, it cannot, it cannot be an afterthought later on to say, you are now 16, 17 years old. We have to prepare you to go out into the world and be successful. So let's do a program. Um, I, th I think <coughs> that's, that's very late in the game to start to do something. All children in care have experienced trauma, and it interferes with the development in many different ways. Um, their first impressions and their experiences last until the day they leave, and far beyond that, like Gerald's story proves. The, the first impressions stay. Any kind of program, um, you know, the, the, the program for boys at the time, it was the only program also where male child and youth care workers were employed. And Gerald said, he talked about some of the male child and youth care workers, and he, he, he told me how he remembers them very well, and, and he said that he experienced true love and acceptance. And so, for me, it's so important that we, we have to talk about the role of men in this profession and that men can care and, and there, is a, there is a role 
and I think we still have a lot of work to do there. So some, some of my reflections, and let me go through this as fast as I can. Independence is part of every child's circle of courage. It, that, it's not something that suddenly becomes important when a child is 16, 17, 18 years old. It's, it's right there from the start. And we have, to, we have to build that independence right from the start and strengthen it right from the start. So it is about quality care more than any kind of program that I think we do later on. It cannot be an afterthought program. We have to think about our programs as being child-centered rather than resource-centered. A lot of the time we use the approach, we say, well, look at the budget that I have, look at the facilities that I have, what can I do with what I have to help the children? And, and that's, that's a, not a good place to start. We have to start with where the child is at and say, what does this child need? And then we look at what do I have and what is the gap and how, how am I going to bridge this gap? But we have to, uh, you know, starting, starting with what we have um, limits us, it limits our thinking right from the start. Um, individualized care rather than standardized programs. We have to talk about this child. Um, the more children we have and the fewer child and youth care workers we have, that ratio, I think makes a big difference. And I think a lot of times we try and compensate when there are a lot of kids around. We try to rely on structure to sort of maintain some kind of order. Um, but it's really not a healthy way to do things. We really have to go back to what does this child need rather than have a program and think that all the children must fit into that. No way that will work. We have to we have to focus on the relations uh, relational rather than routinized and structured care. Not that structure is bad, but I don't, I don't think it's that important either. Uh, normalized care rather than institutionalized care. Uh, I remember we, we bought a new bus when when I was there, and we we had the logo printed on the bus. And the very next day, the children had the logo of the bus. And I was so upset because it cost so much and it was so beautiful. And it took me so long to understand that that, that is a label that they carry with them. And so we have to get away from those things. Childcare work versus social work. Um, I'm not going to show everything, but the youth tell me about um, their experience of childcare workers and social workers being set up as opposites um, and, and often being told that don't go to the office that you know stay away from the office and so there are dynamics there that I'm not going to talk about but the the office often is part of the life space of children if they go there it's part of their life space and we, we have to acknowledge that it's not something for them to stay away from and at the same time social workers forget about the social in the work and they become office workers rather than social workers. Um, I've often told social workers on my staff, where in the world will you get another job where your, your job is to go out and actually play with children? Where are you ever going to get that? Why are you sitting in the office? Because, you know, I just don't get it. But that's often what happens. So people will say, I've got too much time to play with children, but playing is really the job. It is the work that we do. They will say, keep the children out of the office, they're loud, we need to work. But the office is part of their life space, especially if they choose to go there. Right. So the level of care provided and the level of care experience is not always the same. We can easily say, look, 
we provide wonderful care. We do all of these things for the kids. But if they don't experience it, then it really doesn't matter at the end of the day. And the gap between what we provide and what they experience is our responsibility. It's not their responsibility. Children are often unable to connect with us because of what has happened to them, not because of who they are. They have already paid the price for being in a situation where we have to interact with them to try and repair some of the damage and some of the hardship that they've experienced. So we should be careful about placing a further burden on them by blaming them for being in a situation that they had no control over right from the start. So our focus should not be what we provide, but what they experience. If, if I think that I provide a relationship, but the child cannot experience that relationship, it really isn't there. And it becomes my job to figure out how am I going to make this happen? How am I going to connect? That is what relational really is all about. Um, children's experiences may have altered the way that they experience care. And so even when we think we are being nurturing and we're being kind, that may not be what they see. And if children have experienced trauma, what they may actually see is danger. And we have to be aware of that. So we often try to, I, I say, we create system solutions for people problems. And people problems at the end of the day are problems around connection. And a lot of the time we try and, and, and manage those problems by putting systems in place. More rules, more structure, more routines. From now on we do things this way, from now on we do things that way. Where at the end of the day, really what is needed is connection. 